So we ended our time together last week, the way that any good sermon ends, in my opinion, with a lot of vomit, right? That's, that's how you know it was a good sermon. Uh, Jonah was vomited out onto the beach by the great fish after praying a somewhat repentant prayer, somewhat, from the depths of, of death and the belly of the fish by the roots of the mountains as he sunk and he's coming up in the fish, and he prays this prayer of repentance, and the fish vomits Jonah up on dry land. And it appears from last week that Jonah is about to embark on the mission of every true prophet of God, which is to share a word from God with people who God directs us to share it with. That's what Jonah seems to be doing, which is a good concept for a prophet. He's going to finally step into his calling. Originally, if you'll remember, in chapter 1, verse 2, God had told Jonah to arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. That's what God said to Jonah. And a really interesting thing in the original language, it actually says that great city can be translated as one of God's great cities. And that was a really interesting insight into the text. Oftentimes we think about sacred and secular in, in certain ways. We think of the church as being God's place and Saratoga as being whoever's place, the mayor's place, the people's place. But the city belongs to God too. And I think that's a really cool thing to think about, that Saratoga belongs to God. He is the Lord, even if it's not fully exercised yet. But uh, God looks at a city like ours and says, that's my city. Those are my, these are people that I want to redeem and call. And uh, the same was true for Nineveh. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, my great city, Call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. As we said in previous sermons, Nineveh was an evil city. It was very barbaric. It was a very violent place uh, and notorious in the ancient world in which Jonah was situated uh, for, for torturing their enemies, for, for killing families in front of other family members, to the point where death felt like a reward to the people who ended up being killed by them. It, felt, it was such a horrible uh, place and very notorious. And so... Uh, a message from God to Jonah saying, go out and call out against that city seems like a pretty good message given the city's background and really something that Jonah would want to share with them because God, God's judgment is now coming upon them for their wickedness. But Jonah believed that God was sending him. Jonah knew God to some extent. He believed that God was sending him in order to ultimately have mercy on Nineveh, which Jonah did not want to see happen at all. And uh, Jonah had this idea that I don't want these people to, to even get a chance to turn around because they're so wicked, I want them to be judged. So instead of following God's call, as we saw last week, Jonah got up one time when God told him to arise, and from then he just went downward, 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 downward. He descended into disobedience um, and rebellion against God and against God's mission to him and brought himself into a very severe storm and also the people that were with him into a very severe storm on the boat. It's almost comedic among the other prophets in the Bible who obey God, even when God calls them to do very difficult things, people like Hosea and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, to look at the contrast with Jonah, who he kind of is the anti-prophet. He just does the opposite of what God tells him to do, like a little kid would with their parents, right? So God says, go up immediately and share this message. And Jonah rises up. We think he's going to go do it, but he flees to Tarshish. And he, he goes as far west as is possible for someone to go in the ancient world as possible by sea instead of by land. He climbs aboard a boat telling all the, all the people on the boat who don't know God and are not God's people, I'm fleeing from my, my God. So they all were aware of this, this fact. And then he kind of goes into the depths of the boat 
and falls asleep. So he's gone down, 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 as we talked about last week. And it's really a picture of his disobedience. It's a picture of him just bringing this, uh, this, this storm on himself. He's going down, down, down. Just when you think it can't get much worse, the sailors take Jonah and they hurl him into the sea. And he sinks once again. Sinks down to, it says in his prayer, to the roots of the mountains. The furthest that anyone could conceive of someone going down, Jonah goes down. And it almost feels as though the earth is barring Jonah out from creation in his own mind. But at that moment when he is sinking to the roots of the mountains, God, it says, provides a great fish to swallow Jonah. And the fish begins an upward ascent, an ascent with Jonah in his, in his belly. And this fish, far from being a punishment from God, as some people looked at it as a punishment from God against Jonah for what he did, it wasn't really a punishment. It was actually salvation. God was saving Jonah through this rather amusing method inside the belly of a fish. So when Jesus is describing the salvation he's going to bring to us in Matthew 12, he looks at this picture of Jonah inside the fish as a picture of what the salvation that Jesus will bring literally in his body. He says in Matthew 12, 40, Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. It's a similar phrase to what Jonah said, the roots of the mountains, in this place of of death, of Sheol. And Jesus says in Luke 19.10 that he came to seek and save what was lost. The fish in this story is God's vehicle of salvation, carrying Jonah from figurative death to life. And Jesus is literally God's vehicle for, for salvation for the world, putting our trust in Jesus as Savior, and he carries us from hopelessness and death to life as well. Last week we learned the important lesson that before Jonah had yet uttered a word of repentance to God, or even a word of being ashamed for how he had acted and and running from God, God took it upon himself, God took it upon himself to send the fish to rescue Jonah. And it reminds us of our own salvation. It says in Romans 5.8, but God shows us his love and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And what a picture, Jonah sinking, unrepentant, not feeling any shame over just wishing he, he could die and avoid God's mission, certainly making himself an enemy of God's purposes, being saved by a loving and benevolent God. So like the rebellious and defiant prophet Jonah, you know, God sent us a great salvation in Christ. This is the picture Jesus is getting at in, Luke, in uh, Matthew 12. While we were yet unrepentant, while we were still in our own sins, and, and far from God and hopeless, God's salvation is, was given as a gift through Christ. And anyone who receives the gift, like Jonah, gets taken to salvation. We didn't earn it, and God is, is patient as we see, as we seek to keep trying to, to uh, as he seeks to keep trying to reach us with lesson after lesson until we finally understand who God is and how God sees things. And this is the story of Jonah uh, which is also the story we can identify with as well. And I'm definitely excited about the final lesson that, that God is going to teach Jonah because it's such a lesson for us as God's people. And it looks, it's almost as if God has, is bringing Jonah into this strange uh, classroom and trying to teach him a lesson through all the things that happened to Jonah. And I'm excited to see that. So, so as I said last week, we, it, be, it began with some vomit, so a little smelly, a little dirty. Jonah, who is still unrepentant, still not following God, is saved by the gift of God, by this great fish. And as it dawns on Jonah that he's not going to die, Jonah has a flash of insight and calls out to God in a prayer of repentance, vowing to set out to complete the mission that God had originally given him. 
So I think that we, as, as the reader of the story, we're meant to use our imaginations to put ourselves into Jonah's sandals, into his Crocs, whatever he's wearing. Use our imaginations to put ourselves in Jonah's shoes and, and really think about, you know, your body just sinking in the ocean. You know, like think like Titanic, Leonardo DiCaprio, sinking. Um, down, 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 going in and out of consciousness. And you kind of know in your heart that you're, you're reaping what you sowed. This is, this is on you. And you're getting consequences for your disobedience ultimately by, by this act of you being thrown into the water. And suddenly, a fish swallows, follows, swallows you, swallows Jonah. And you think to yourself at first that this is it. This is my final judgment. I'm going to be eaten by this terrifying sea creature. And then you find that you're alive and breathing inside the sea creature. And perhaps you think, um, maybe I'm not going to die from this. Then you start he- hearing your, the pressure change and you, your ears pop. You realize the fish is going upward. And at some point, it dawned on, jo- on Jonah that he was going upward. And that he wasn't going to die inside this fish. That there must be salvation coming. And God is withholding a judgment on him at this moment. So if you can imagine that place, Jonah prays this prayer in Jonah 2, 9 and 10, which we read last week, where he says, But with the voice of thanksgiving, I will offer sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And then the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah on dry land. What I have vowed, Jonah says, I will pay. So as the reader, we are supposed to see these parallels between now Jonah's renewed mission in chapter 3 and Jonah's original call in chapter 1. In chapter 1, verse 1, it says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. In chapter 3, verse 1, an exact parallel, it says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. In chapter 1, verse 2, it says, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it, for the evil has come up before me. In chapter 3, 2, it says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. The message I tell you, a little bit different. Chapter 1, verse 3 says, But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Chapter 3, 3 says, So Jonah rose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. So Jonah, like, like everyone here, I will, I will say it, everyone here has its second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth chances with God, right? Jonah uh, gets another chance to do the very thing God originally called him to do. And his calling is, is reaffirmed in chapter 3. And this time, God seems to have a more specific message in mind that he'd like Jonah to share with the people of Nineveh. Um, instead of saying, call out against it, for their evil has come up before me, God says, call out against it, the message I will tell you. It's sort of an uh, implied relationship thing where God's going to share with Jonah at the time that he needs it, a word for these people. So the text says, so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. So in, verse, in chapter 3, 4, Jonah gets, Jonah gets into Nineveh, which is called the great city, and he simply says to the people of that city a very short eight-word sermon, five words in Hebrew, but eight words in English, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So we don't know if this is the specific message God had given Jonah to say, but we have every reason to think that it probably is just something God gave him to say in that moment. So the original um, word for overthrown in Hebrew is a word that can mean both 
destroyed, like when Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed in the Old Testament, or it can mean uh, transformed and turned around. So it's a double entendre. It's a word that can mean two things. And so it's, it's really interesting. Uh, Jonah is, in one sense, is saying 40 more days in Nineveh will be destroyed. But if you look at the other meanings of that same word, it could mean turned around and redeemed. So I, don't ha- I, I think that probably Jonah had in his mind destroyed, like Simon and Gomorrah. He was hoping for fire to fall from the sky and consume everything. But it appears that God had in, had in mind this idea of turning around, of turning these people around from judgment to mercy. And this is really a kindness from God to give Jonah this very specific Hebrew word because if you think about it, if a prophet in the Old Testament gives a prophecy that doesn't come to pass, that prophet is liable to be held responsible for that word and, and put to death for being a false prophet. So God gave him a word that could mean one or the other, and it came true. So much like uh, the, the pagan sailors who turned from their other gods and followed Jonah's god when they hurled him overboard, they, they worshipped they made vows to Yahweh and they worshipped him and they turned their lives around. So, at the preaching of Jonah's eight-word sermon, all the people of Nineveh turn around too. It's like, no matter where Jonah goes, no matter how crummy of a prophet he is, it's a great encouragement to someone in ministry like myself. <laughs> you know? Uh, because God's purposes get, get done. So, just by him being there, God does an amazing thing. In response to Jonah's word, we're going to pick it up in in chapter 3, verse 5. It says, And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. This is really repentant behavior and very... um, very much like how Israel repents in their times of reckoning with God. And he issued a proclamation, published it throughout Nineveh, saying, By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not feed or do not let them feed, let them not feed, sorry, or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. It's an amazing story of, of, of like a, a perfect repentance. If you, could, if you could have written, this is what God, you know, something beyond Jonah's eight-word sermon, this is what God would like to see in your repentance. This is what it would have been. These people really thoroughly turned. Because of what Jonah says next in chapter 4, you know, how the Ninevites respond to Jonah's proclamation of doom will not be a surprise to Jonah. But for us as the reader, Nineveh's repentance is rather surprising, how thorough it is. Following Jonah, Jonah's eight-word sermon, Everyone believed, everyone put on sackcloth and ashes from the king to the common people to the cattle, and they fasted. And what we take away from this is that Nineveh has gone through a painfully thorough repentance for their sins, for their violence, it says, for the violence of their hands. When the king says, everyone turn from their evil ways to be restored. So this very thorough repentance of man and animal 
and the attitude of the king that lacks any sense of entitlement. There's no sense of entitlement in him. It serves as a real contrast to what we see in God's reluctant messenger, Jonah, in this final chapter of the book. From now on, having seen this thorough repentance of the Ninevites, Jonah is now, in our minds, contrasted with Nineveh, his greatest enemy. So if, like the Ninevites, Jonah will just repent and change his thinking about the objectives of God's mercy, of who God is and what God does, perhaps Jonah can be saved, not just from a drowning death, but in his heart of hearts, in his inner man, from spiritual death. So we're going to take a look now at Jonah's inner man, beginning in chapter 4. How does Jonah's inner man respond to what God does? It says this, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. Once again, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? So right off the top of our heads, we see Jonah's heart following that big prayer of repentance inside the big fish, um, has changed. Jonah's gone from grateful and ready to fulfill God's mission, the vow that he made, to furious with God concerning God's mercy towards the Ninevites. Furious. That's a pretty strong word in our language, right? That means like burning with anger, being hot with anger. At this moment, we, we, we as the reader, we see this contrast between the Ninevites and their repentance and Jonah and his Lack of repentance. The Ninevite king repenting in sackcloth and ashes with, along with his people with fasting all the way down to the cows. And the Ninevite king says this phrase, who knows, maybe God will turn and relent. Who knows? And turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. No sense of entitlement in him. No sense that we're earning God, God's forgiveness from him. Just, a, just this humble, let's see what happens. We deserve what's coming to us, waiting on God. And you contrast that with Jonah who has already, let's face it, tried God's patience pretty severely. Um, it doesn't appear that God, God's patience seems very extreme to me. But, but Jonah has, has tried God's patience. He's run from God. He's, he's even gotten to the point of having to be saved by a fish all the way down to the bottom of the ocean. And now this, this Jonah, who's been forgiven much, he now presumes to come before God with a prayer of hot, furious anger about God giving mercy to someone else. And he's incensed that God lived up to what is written about him in the Old Testament. These phrases, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, gracious, relenting from sending disaster, all through Exodus, through the Old Testament, through the Psalms, this is who God is. And Jonah is, is angry and hot with anger that God would show mercy to these people, even after the great mercy God's shown Jonah. And as the reader, you almost feel nervous for Jonah at this point. Like, what's going to happen to Jonah now? He means really blown it now, right? It's kind of funny to think about an angry little man who still kind of smells like fish and vomit, shaking his fist at God, furious at God. But this is a moment when we, uh, as we take in this story, we get to see just how patient, how kind, and how long-suffering, that's like the word for patience, God really is with Jonah and with us, like who God is, how patient he is. Instead of smoking Jonah at that moment, just for trying God's patience, God invites 
Jonah into his classroom to try to teach him in a way that he can hear, which is amazing. The things that God asks Jonah in this classroom sound a lot like the questions Jesus asked his people and what he said in the Sermon on the Mount. In other words, through these gentle questions, through these gentle lessons, in the absence of wrath, we see this patient, kind, and humble spirit. Amazing. This doesn't make any sense. The humble spirit of God coming down to his creation on their level and trying to reason with them. And God has three questions he asks Jonah in this uh, divine classroom and also questions that we can take in ourselves this morning. After his big speech, Jonah concludes saying to God, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. This is kind of a teenager kind of angry at their parents situation. The Lord says, do you do well to be angry? That's question number one. Do you do well to be angry? This is a pretty good question. God knows that Jonah, much like ourselves as followers of Christ, God knows that Jonah has forgotten something so fundamental and which has so recently been revealed to him. And that thing is God's mercy towards Jonah. Jonah's forgotten the mercy God has shown him. Even in the, just a few days before in the fish, Jonah has forgotten about his great deliverance from God, from, from death, through the great fish that God appointed. And because he had forgotten this, his heart is no longer pointed in the direction of repentance any longer. But instead, it's pointed against God and against his ways. And we're, we are tempted at this point to label Jonah harshly as a very short-sighted and foolish man. But Jonah is not the only person that suffers from this kind of memory problem. Um, this is a very, unfortunately, our condition as people. So often we cry out to God for mercy in the depths of our sin and brokenness, pledging all kinds of things to God. If you do this, I will fill in the blank. Then we get deli- delivered. We get, we get to standing on solid ground we tend to forget almost immediately and embarrassingly God's mercy to us, allowing our hearts to stray in pride, which is our native tongue. And uh, we begin to see that just in the way we, we look at other people, let alone ourselves. And Jonah's pride is really capped off in the fact that, if you'll notice, he doesn't even answer God's first question to him. That's pretty gutsy. He doesn't even answer God's question. Again, you, you wait for the fire to fall, but it doesn't fall. God's going to continue to speak to Jonah. Jonah. But Jonah ignores God's question. And in this moment, we see the mercy of God. Let's pick it up in verse uh, 5. God says, Do you do well to be angry? And Jonah goes out of the city <laughs> and sits to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he could see what would become of the city. No answer. Just a little storming off to look at the city from a high place. And as we read those words, you can't help but think about the king of Nineveh, right? Who said, everyone, including the cattle, must pray fast, put on sackcloth and ashes. Who knows? Maybe God will have mercy on us. And Jonah is saying, who knows? Maybe God will kill everybody, <laughs> you know, essentially. Jonah has left the city, sat on the east of it in a self-made booth to see what would become of these people. Maybe God will relent from his mercy and judge them in Jonah's mind. So we have this, this very pregnant moment in the story where the king and his people, the people of Nineveh are waiting with bated breath to see, will God have mercy on us? Will God show mercy to us? Or will he judge us for our sins, which we deserve? 
And we have this pregnant moment where Jonah is saying, who knows, maybe he will relent from his mercy and judge these people. The contrast couldn't be more clear between Jonah and the Ninevites. Continuing, continuing in verse 6, um, just as God had appointed, it says, the great fish, remember he appointed the fish to swallow Jonah, and then appointed the fish to spit Jonah up on the beach. After Jonah ignores God's question, do you do well to be angry, God appoints a plant, a worm, and a wind. So he appoints three things in the rest of the story. In verse 6, Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from the discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die. We've seen this before. <laughs> this guy. He asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? <laughs> God says the same question to him again, but now asking about the plant. Do you do well to be angry about the plant. And Jonah says, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. <laughs> and the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 people who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? God's classroom. And just like that, the book of Jonah is over. Yes, exactly. It's a, it's, a, it's, a pretty, it's a pretty great narrative. After Jonah ignores God's first question, in chapter 4, verses five, verse 5, do you do well to be angry? God, in his mercy, decides to go at it from a more concrete perspective that maybe Jonah can... Uh, sympathize with. If God doesn't care about the Ninevites, maybe he'll care about this plant. And it, worked, it turned out very well. So as Jonah sits on the mountain hoping to see God drop liquid fire on these people, um, his enemies, the Ninevites, God is instead busy doing something much smaller, much smaller than Jonah anticipated. God is appointing a shade plant to grow over Jonah as he watches from his mountain perch to ease the discomfort of the sun being down in his head. Now, as anyone who has sat in the sun for a long period of time and is feeling faint, and then you get underneath shade, you know, it's a real relief. And Jonah, it says, loves that plant. He just loves that plant because it shaded him. He loves it with all of his heart, it seems like. But God's lesson is not quite over. Now that Jonah has enjoyed the plant, God appoints for his comfort. Now God appoints a worm that feasts on the plant and instantly kills it, destroying its shade qualities. Now, not only this, but when the hot sun rose over Jonah, who's beginning to wake up from his sleep, God appoints a convection oven over Jonah, that hot wind burning, pushing the burning air in the desert into his face. And this causes Jonah once again to beg for death. Now that God has Jonah's attention with this little story, he asks Jonah his second question. And this time, Jonah cannot ignore him and walk away. In verse 8, it says, When the sun rose... God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint, and he asked that he might die. 
and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? So God has cleverly moved from the subject of the Ninevites deserving to receive mercy, which Jonah does not agree with at all, to the subject of the shade plant that God gave him and then took away. And God asks, asks Jonah, do you do well to be angry because of the plant? And Jonah says, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. God has just, without Jonah even realizing it, revealed something in Jonah's heart. People and cattle, Jonah says, kill them all without mercy. But I love this plant. And I deserve to feel rage about this plant withering. So God has trapped Jonah and gets the last word in the book. And we don't get to hear anything else from Jonah. The Lord says, revealing this thing about Jonah, he says, you pity the plant, in verse 10, for which you did not labor, nor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in the night and perished in the night. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 people who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. This is the only book in the Bible that ends with cows, by the way. God makes the point of all points, saying, I am the creator, and I do as I please. Jonah. God provided the fish, God provided the plant, God provided the worm, and God provided the wind. God can do as he pleases, is really the first point of Job's reply. It's, it's reminiscent of the book of Job in some ways. The next point that God's, God makes is to hammer into Jonah's skull what he is really like. And God really is exactly as Jonah thought he was and how, how he is described in the Old Testament. He is gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. So taking those two points together that God makes and taking into account the rest of Jonah's story, the point is that God is the creator, he can do as he pleases, and that God is greatly merciful even to someone who runs in the opposite direction in disobedience and even ignores God's word. What God is rebuking in, in Jonah is a heart attitude that says yes to abundant mercy for me. In fact, I somewhat deserve mercy because I'm such a great person. But no to mercy for other people who are my enemies. Please show judgment without mercy to other people. So Jonah represents Israel in the story, and he also represents us, God's people, today. And what is being rebuked is just a lack of compliance with what God is trying to do in our lives. A lack of preaching to the people around us with a desire that they be saved by God, even people that we, are, we consider our enemies. And what is being rebuked is a lack of love uh, that, God has, that we have in response to God against certain other people who are our enemies or are just totally different from us in how they think and what they do. So in Jonah's story, this lack of mercy and love in Jonah's heart is a contrast to the behavior and attitude in the Ninevites and their king, Israel's enemy, who repented thoroughly from the king to the cattle without any assurance that God would have mercy on them in the end. No sense of entitlement, just repenting. And, and the, the contrast with Jonah is that Jonah uh, believed somehow that he was deserving of being the arbiter of God's mercy, just by nature of being one of God's people or being God's prophet. This is very similar to some of the teachings of Christ in the New Testament. In Luke 11:4, very common passage, uh, Jesus says this very disturbing thing in the Lord's Prayer when he says, forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Forgive our sins, for, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Forgive us 
our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. The whole idea of this teaching is that there's an expectation that if you have been forgiven by God, that you will have a heart that is humbled and you will be poised to forgive other people as well. And there is even a contingency where, where it seems to be saying God's forgiveness hinges on us being active respondents to God's forgiveness to us. This is, this is driven at home again in 1 John 4.20, which says, If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So in much lo- stronger language than I would use, John says, if, someone, if, if there's a believer who hates someone they can see and they claim to love God, it's just not true. They don't love God. The only way you can truly love God is if you love the person you can see. It's a very, very strong word. Again, Jesus says in Matthew 5, 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. As Christians, we have to allow God's questions and lessons to get to our heart of hearts in, the, in this area of forgiveness and love and who we forgive and who we love and this area of of being humbled by the great mercy of God every day and how we conduct ourselves. It's so easy for us to just go from the fish and the repentant prayer to our high horse once again. And as your pastor, I feel it's my obligation to tell you that for the person that fails to repent of their lack of love and unforgiveness towards others, while at the same time claiming that they know God or love God, for someone that lacks mercy for other people, while receiving plenty of mercy for themselves, that there are no assurances for that person because it would appear that you don't actually love God or that you haven't really received the gift he's given. If, if those things are harbored in your heart, it's an indicator that there is a place that God's grace and mercy has not come into your life yet. And I think it's important to, to see these hard truths in the scriptures that if there's someone that we, if there's someone that we hate in our lives— while at the same time saying we love God, we have to say we need to route this out. We need to learn whatever God le- God's lesson is here. If we are asking for forgiveness while at the same time not forgiving other people, you know, we have a problem. If we are not being merciful to other people in response to God's great mercy for us, we have a real serious problem, a destructive problem. Very much like that worm, you know, that, that God appointed. It's eating away at us. It's going to destroy us. And I do feel like it's my obligation to to share that every once in a while. That's a hard truth. But the other truth is that God strives with us as long as we are alive. He strives with us to work and root these things out of our lives to help us to have the strength to forgive other people, to have the strength to love other people, and to to bless our enemies and those who persecute us, uh, to give us the strength to take the mercy and love we've received and turn them out towards other people who are difficult to give love and mercy to. Um, The Spirit of God strives with us very much like God uh, strove with Jonah in his journey. I just love the way that uh, that God was so patient with Jonah, so long-suffering. And we don't know how Jonah responded at the end to God's final lesson, but the point is, uh, is learning about who God is, how humanity has messed up, and how we can correct the ship. James 2, 1 to 13 is a really interesting passage. It says, My brothers, show no partiality 
as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. So this is talking about worship service. If a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, into your church, and the poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, but you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in just one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment without mercy will, to the one who has been shown, for judgment is, is, is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is a strong, this is another strong indicator of this, this lesson that God is trying to teach us. When, when you look around you, do you do, are there people that you show partiality to because of the way they look, the way they appear? Is there any sense in which the people around you cause you to, you feel disdain for them, or you think they're, they're hopeless, or you think that they can't, they're beyond somehow the, the reach of God's mercy, or that, you know, you wouldn't want to associate with them because they, they drive you crazy in some kind of way. Um, these are things that God is trying to bring up in our hearts. You know, when we think about enemies, when we think about these people that we, we are harsh with, God, God talks about if you've been given mercy, then show mercy. If you've been given love, then show love. And end with this final parable from Jesus in Matthew 18. Um, and Julie's going to lead us in a closing song. It says, Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me. I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you, Jonah? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. So this, this story of Jonah, it's meant to to be used by the Spirit of Christ to speak to us, to test our hearts and our thoughts, just as God tested Jonah's heart and his thoughts with his questions. And God is faithful and patient with us, as he was with Jonah, persisting to teach us until we relent 
and learn the lessons. In, uh, in, very, in very short order, um, this lesson is, there's, there's, there's two commands. Love God, love others. Forgive as you've been forgiven. Give mercy as you've been given mercy. And we've always received more mercy from God than we ever calculate. We often forget the height from which we've fallen. And that's what the, the scriptures tell us many times in the wisdom. It says, remember the height from which you've fallen. Remember the height from which you've fallen. It's in Revelation. It's in some of the Old Testament books. We forget. We forget, just like Jonah. And we start, our hearts start to fill with pride and we start to look at other people differently and discriminate among ourselves. And God is just inviting us, I think, through this story to repent, to begin to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us, to reach out with the prophetic word of God to a people who we, in our hearts, struggle to love and see as God's beloved. Um, let's pray with me. Lord, this is, our, this is the city we live in, Saratoga and the surrounding area, and this is your city, Jesus. Um, this is your city. These are your people. I pray that we would have your eyes, not only in our church here, to see each other without partiality, with love, with grace, with mercy, um, as those who have been forgiven a great debt, but we would also, every person we see in our daily lives, in our workplaces, in our supermarkets, um, downtown, we look at these people as your, your possession, people that you are calling from darkness into light. And that we would, um, instead of having judgment and disdain for those around us, we would have love for them, Lord, as you've shown love to us. And we recognize, like the king of Nineveh, that you know, there is nothing in us that we should receive this mercy, but because of who you are, we have received it. And I pray that we would have humility by your spirit and that we give mercy, we give love, give forgiveness, and share a message with great conviction because of the love you have for others around us, Lord. And I, I guess may it start in our small circles here in the church and move outward, Lord, this love that we are supposed to have, this mercy we're supposed to give. So that at the end of our lives, when we are judged by the mercy we've given, that we would be able to say, I, I was given mercy and I gave mercy. I was given love and I gave love. That we'd all remain humble. Lord, that's the, that's the need of our heart, the need of the hour, that we'd remain humble and that your spirit would keep us in a place of love, in a place of, of humility, in a place of forgiveness, in a place of even brokenness, God, um, because you have done such a great work in us. And we still stink of the ocean. We still stink of the fish. And, and, uh, but, Lord, let us give mercy. Let us give mercy to everyone around us, Lord, and love. And something the Holy Spirit has put on my heart is from, a, from this story, you know, Jonah sat on his mountain and looked at Nineveh to see what God would do to it. And all the while, God was doing something right in his vicinity, providing this tree, providing the worm, providing the wind. Jonah was looking at the outward things, and God was right there with him doing something he didn't even notice. And so many times we see the outside, the outside world and what's going on in our world, the big exclamation points, elections, politics, family issues, pandemics, we fail to see the thing that God is doing, the classroom he's brought us into. And I just pray for each of you this week that you would see the lessons God is trying to teach you, that he is speaking with a still small voice, that his lessons are not out there primarily, but they are in here. They're in your household, in your own heart. And, and God is toe-to-toe with you this morning, just like he was toe-to-toe with Jonah.
Just like he went toe-to-toe with Job, he goes toe-to-toe with his people. He takes their questions. He, he answers them. He reveals things. May you see it. May you see the teacher as he instructs you this week. I bless you in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. As dearly loved people who have been given great mercy, may you dearly love others and give them mercy as well. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dispersed. Go and be the church.